Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the early hours of Monday morning at 4.17 a.m., beneath the ancient city of Gaziantep, the earth rumbled and shook. Video showing the moment that 7.8 magnitude quake hit. You can hear the shaking. A second 7.6 quake rocked the center of the country, making the rescue efforts even more dangerous. A wave of destruction was unleashed across southern Turkey and over the border in northern Syria. Satellite images show entire neighbourhoods reduced to rubble. We're trying to warm up with this fire. We're trying to survive without food or water. But the defining images of this disaster are the ones that show the human cost. In Sarmadar, north of Aleppo in Syria, a man digs through the rubble with his bare hands. There's a small cry, and then the face of a young girl emerges, buried up to her shoulders. She looks at the camera, terrified, as her father calls out, Don't worry, Daddy's here. But not every story ends with a family reunited. Just 30 kilometres south of that scene, in Jenderis, a newborn baby girl is found alive in the rubble, the umbilical cord still attached to her mother. But her mother is dead, and so is her father and her four siblings. Now we have two alternatives. We will tie the mother and dead body. We will take it out. These are just a few snapshots of the unfolding tragedy. For the rescue teams, they're facing freezing temperatures and a race against time. But in war-torn Syria, which has been isolated from much of the West for years now, aid is struggling to trickle in at all. Meanwhile, in Turkey, shock is turning to anger against the government. 
We have no electricity. We have no any additional machines. We have no support yet from the government. Now we are dying here. No. Just dying. Okay, just dying. How did these earthquakes manage to kill so many people? And could any of this devastation have been prevented? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the Turkey-Syria earthquakes. What happens now? The earthquake hit at 4.17 in the morning. And, you know, one minute you're, you're in deep sleep, the next everything is shaking. And um, my husband woke me up. He said, earthquake, there's an earthquake. I'm Sarah Tor. I am a freelance journalist. I'm half Turkish. I'm half English. I write regularly for The Times as a columnist. Also, I'm currently in Turkey visiting relatives. And I got caught up in the earthquake that hit southeast Turkey on Monday. Where exactly were you? So I was in Mersin, a province that's 300 kilometres away from the epicentre of Kahramanmaraş. It's southeastern, so if you think about where Cyprus is on a map, if you draw a line sort of straight up to Turkey, that's where I was. So close enough to feel it. Take us back to the early hours when the earthquake hit. Yeah. How did that feel? So we were staying with family in Mersin. And everything was just shaking. The light shade was swinging violently. We sort of jumped out of bed and we we didn't quite know what to do. It was sort of blind panic. We decided the best place to crouch was just to crouch in the doorway. There's no no time to get out um, because everything's already shaking. So we crouched in the doorway, held on to the wall. I had sort of one hand on the wall one hand over my head, over my neck, and just waited for it to stop. Um, But it didn't. With your hand on the wall, could you feel it moving? Was it shaking? Yes, yeah, everything. Absolutely everything. The walls, the floor underneath me, everything was just shaking. And we kept thinking, you know, it's going to be over, it's going to be over. But it didn't stop. It just kept getting stronger. And as it got stronger, that's when the prayers start. I've never heard the word Allah repeated so many times with such fervour. And at the time, I'm thinking, my God, this is here. Where has this started? Where is this centre? And what is going on there? Because I know where we are in Mersin isn't a massive earthquake zone. So the centre couldn't be there. So I was just, yeah, it's just awful. So you could feel everything around you moving. It's going on and getting worse rather than stopping. What happens next? How long does it go on for? Do you know, I couldn't tell you how long it went on for. I've since read that it lasted for a minute or something, but it felt like an absolute lifetime. It just didn't stop. And for someone like me, you know, in the UK, we don't, You know, we might have small tremors, but I've never experienced one. I've always sort of slept through them if we've had them or whatever. But this was absolutely terrifying. My heart was pounding. 
dry mouth, everything. And everything inside me was screaming, you need to get out. And yet we couldn't because we were on the fourth floor and everything is moving. And the best thing like we thought we could do is just stay somewhere that's relatively safe because if we're out on the stairwell, it could just drop on us. Thankfully, the building remained upright, wasn't even damaged. And when it did finally come to an end, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, it wasn't quite over. There were aftershocks. What does that feel like? Yeah, so it, it came to an end and we're all sort of, you know, we're just trying to process what's happened. And I think it must have been just a few minutes later, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, you know, we've got another one. I think that was the aftershock at that moment neighbours from upstairs ran down, they banged on the door and said, we've got to get out. Those neighbours had been caught up in the earthquake in 1999 in Turkey, in Izmir. That was a terrible one as well. The husband had, had actually been pulled out of the rubble on that time, so 24 years ago. And so when they're banging on the door saying, we need to get out... That's when we think, okay, these people kind of know what what to do. They've been through it before. Let's go. I mean, it sounds terrifying. And as you got out, were people streaming out of buildings all around you? absolutely packed. This is about maybe five o'clock in the morning. Everyone is in pyjamas with sort of coats, whatever they can get just thrown on them. The roads are jam-packed with everyone trying to get to an open area. It's raining. It's cold. It was obviously still dark. All the lights are on in the buildings. Everyone's outside. Pavements are full. I think cafes and convenience stores had opened up if people needed to get any kind of food or water. And other places, kind of schools and big open areas had opened up as well. People had gone into those areas too. And in the days that have followed, and, you know, you've started to see Mm -hmm. images and presumably hear from people in the region that was sort of worst affected... How has that felt? Awful. So my husband's aunt, she and her family live in Hatay, Iskenderun, which is one of the worst affected areas. By some stroke of luck, they were actually with my husband's family in Mersin at the time of the earthquake. So they weren't at home, but their home has been completely destroyed. So they have nothing. And his cousin, so the daughter of that family, was at university in Marash, which is the epicentre of the earthquake. She had come home because it was holiday, so she wasn't there, but her dormitory has completely collapsed. So that family got so, so lucky. But they are distraught that, you know, they've been left with nothing. They're thankful, so thankful that they haven't lost anyone. Yeah. But they've, obviously, they've lost belongings, but, you know, none of that really matters. But they went back Tuesday to to just see what's going on, to take food and water. And they said they went to their their neighbourhood and there there's just no one there. But they can hear voices crying for help from the rubble. Oh, that's awful. But there are no search and rescue teams there at the moment. And I think this is the problem throughout the area, particularly Hatay. They're just not enough people to help. And I don't understand why. I don't know. Obviously, it is a big area and they have mobilised many people, but it's not enough. 
And there are so many people using social media, Twitter to say, look, I have relatives in this area, in this neighborhood. It's generally in Hatay. And they say no one is coming to help. But there are still people alive and trapped under the rubble and they are crying for help. The worst of the devastation was 300 kilometers to the east of Mersin, the city Sara was in, close to the epicenters of the earthquakes. I was in Istanbul when news of the earthquake broke and I've been spending the past few days speaking with people who've been affected on the ground, particularly in and around the city of Gaziantep, which is as close to ground zero as you could be. Gabriel Gavin is a journalist based in Istanbul covering Turkey and Russia. His contacts in the city of Gaziantep, which was close to the epicentre of the first and biggest earthquake, and is just an hour from the Turkish-Syrian border, have all been caught in the heart of the devastation. Well, I think the situation's been absolutely desperate. There was very, very little direction for people who were fleeing their homes. They weren't told really very, very clearly where to go. They weren't told where to assemble. And so as a result, Several people that I spoke to just put their stuff in their cars and got on the road and drove. And obviously that means that you have a huge number of people trying to get out of these areas and it potentially hampers rescue workers coming in. And when you add that to the fact that large amounts of infrastructure, the roads, the runways have been damaged in the earthquake, it means that this becomes a very difficult and isolated region to reach when you're trying to deliver humanitarian relief. We've seen some of the most horrific uh, images coming out from Turkey. There was a picture that's been circulating of a man named Mesut Hanjer from Karamamarash, uh, one of the neighborhoods worst affected. And he's sitting in his high-vis jacket by the rubble of his former home, reaching through a gap and holding the hand of his 15-year-old daughter who's died underneath the ruins. It's horrifying. What have the rescue efforts been like? They've begun opening up channels that allow large numbers of rescuers to come in. Just walking around Istanbul, I've seen large numbers of rescuers basically getting into vehicles and traveling towards the airport, traveling on road. Istanbul's airport has become the hub of this international rescue and recovery mission. And we are seeing aid workers from around the world descend here on this airport. This is where they're landing, they're collecting their gear, and they're preparing to head out into the hardest hit areas. Japanese emergency rescue team who have very strong experience in earthquakes have already arrived, as have teams from a lot of other countries. The EU has sent 27 separate rescue teams as part of the emergency assistance request, and in addition has opened up access to the Copernicus satellite system that's going to allow rescuers to have far greater view using satellite imagery of the areas that they're operating in. But certainly people in the early hours of Monday morning were gathering in sports halls. They were told they, they couldn't go into their homes, which were now structurally unsafe and had massive cracks in the walls, but they weren't told to go anywhere else in many cases. And as a result, people were basically huddling under whatever shelter they could find around barrels with fires in them to try and keep warm because mm. the weather has massively complicated the relief effort with freezing temperatures. Tell us about that. How much of an impact has it had? 
Certainly in places like Hatay, the province that's been worst affected, temperatures have been minus two, minus five every night. And if you think about people trapped beneath the rubble in that situation, holding out and hope that rescuers will come across them and be able to free them, that suddenly becomes an extremely acute, um, acute issue when temperatures are that low. But likewise, the heavy weather, the strong winds, the snow have meant it's very difficult for aid workers to operate outside for long periods of time and for people to bring in support via the roads, via the aeroplane. There are tens of thousands of people still estimated to be under the rubble, according to officials, although there are estimates that many of those are already unfortunately dead. Over the border, in Syria, the situation is starkly different. The earthquake struck in areas that have been fiercely fought over for more than a decade in the Syrian civil war. Many of the areas affected are currently held by rebel forces who oppose President Assad's regime. So for the past decade, as the carnage of the Syrian civil war has worsened, we've seen the country and its government under President Bashar al-Assad become more and more isolated, and the number of sanctions imposed massively increasing. Years of civil war has crippled the Syrian economy, but the currency's collapse is due in part to new U.S. sanctions. In addition to freezing aid for reconstruction, the measure effectively prevents anyone around the world from doing business with Syrian officials or government institutions. But it's important to understand that those sanctions and that isolation originates from the fact that the Assad regime has constantly shown disregard for the lives of its own citizens. And in fact, even the hours since this terrible earthquake, forces from Damascus have actually bombed Idlib, one of the worst affected provinces in their own country. It's very clear that the conflict is still at the fore of what's happening in Syria. And as a result, it makes it very difficult to find aid organisations that can work there and haven't been banned by the Syrian government and actually are willing to work there given the security situation for the international community. The only real ways to support are to work with the International Red Cross, which is one of the few organizations that can still get in, and also the White Helmets, who have real experience of rescuing people from underneath rubble that, in most cases, has come about because the Assad regime has been bombing its citizens. It's horrifying to think that they're still bombing. They don't see this as a moment to stop in the middle of a humanitarian crisis. For that part of Syria, you know, we now know that the Syrians have gone to the EU to ask for help. They've been granted more than £3 million worth of aid. How do the EU make sure that it gets to those rebel areas that are still being bombed rather than staying in Damascus? Well, I think it's really difficult because there's real confusion around how aid is going to be delivered. There used to be four border crossings used by the United Nations to deliver aid to rebel-held areas under pressure from Russia and China, who want the aid channeled through Damascus. Now there's only one at Bab al-Hawa. Turkey actually has to approve much of the aid that flows across the border through the Bab al-Hawa crossing point, which is the only one now open. Russia will, of course, support Syria, which it sees as one of its main strategic allies and has been supporting it in the Assad regime's fight against the rebels and against ISIS. But 
Russia had previously said that the delivery of humanitarian aid without the permission of the Syrian government was effectively a threat to the sovereignty of its ally. And the other border crossings have now been closed. So there, it really is trying to perform major surgery through a keyhole, and it's going to be very difficult for policymakers to get it right. Coming up, as desperation turns to anger, what happens next? And should Turkey have been better prepared for the earthquake? That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Louise Callahan, a foreign correspondent for The Sunday Times. I work from the front line of international politics and war, bringing you stories from Ukraine to Syria and Yemen. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wednesday morning, in Hatay province, one of the areas the earthquake had ripped through, leaving a trail of destruction. As rescue attempts continued, the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, arrived, dressed all in black and surrounded by a flurry of photographers, to meet survivors. And when he addressed reporters during that visit, they were surprised to hear him admit that there had been problems with the initial response. We had some problems in some places like airports in the beginning. We had problems on the roads, but it's better today and it will be even better tomorrow. Despite that promise, across Turkey, questions are being raised about whether the country should have been better prepared, particularly as this isn't the first major earthquake they've experienced. Well, earthquakes aren't uncommon in Turkey. There are two fault lines that run through this massive country. One runs east to west through Istanbul all the way towards Armenia and Georgia. The other runs north to south through eastern Anatolia, which is where this earthquake has taken place. And in particular, Gaziantep lies just off this so-called strike-slip fault line. And as a result, seismic activity there is not only common, it's expected, it's a known hotspot for this kind of thing. However, I think very few people are expecting something on this scale. And this earthquake is already the worst in almost a century. As recently as 1999, 17,000 people died in Izmit near Istanbul. And the high death toll was attributed to poor construction. 
And likewise, in a case that's a little bit more comparable with this, in 1939, in the city of Erzinjan, which is actually quite close to Gaziantep, 33,000 people died and another 100,000 were injured in a horrific earthquake that's on a similar scale to this one. And actually, a really harsh winter prevented aid being delivered and complicated the process of trying to help and save people's lives. And as a result, minus 30 degree temperatures just led to more deaths and woes. So why do you think they weren't better prepared for this? Where has everything gone wrong? Well, one of the bits of footage that's inspired the most anger here was a clip of a brand new build tower block in an earthquake hotspot that's supposed to be and billed and marketed as earthquake resistant, just crumbling like a house of cards. So there is a real sense that people have been promised that things were going to be different this time and that every step had been taken to keep them and their families safe. But actually, when push comes to shove, nothing is up to the standards that was expected. So I regularly work in a cafe run by a Kurdish family from just outside Gaziantep. And on the morning of the earthquake, the guy who runs it, his name's Sam, comes in and he looked completely flustered. And I said, you know, Nasil Sin, you know, is everything all right? And he put his head in his hands and told me that his best friend from back home was under the rubble and no one could get hold of the rest of his family, although it had been confirmed that his friend's mother had already died. And that sorrow and that that sense of grief was very, very quickly transformed for him into anger because he said, this guy is a civil engineer. And for him, there was this really tragic irony of a civil engineer potentially losing his life because of shoddy construction work. And he said that actually for him, it was all about corruption. Over the past few years, Turkey's seen this massive construction boom. It's been a vital driver of the economy. It's about 5% of GDP, it employs 1.5 million people. It's been the success story of Turkey's otherwise flagging economy. But actually, there's always been debate about whether or not it's been a kind of hive of bad practices and that the buildings that are being thrown up are actually of high standard and in line with internationally recognised guidelines. Will this spell trouble for President Erdogan? How much of that anger will be directed at him? Well, so the presidential elections are now in May, and Erdogan already faces probably the toughest test of his time in office. The worsening economic situation had already seen his polling numbers tumble. But for Erdogan, he's a bit of a political survivor. Almost every election has taken place in an environment of crisis in which he seeks to present himself as offering stability. But at the same time, this is a little bit different because he needs to show competence and he's presided over a system that many Turkish people will fear has failed them and potentially endangered their families. He needs to show that he's handling the crisis effectively and he needs to avoid being blamed for low construction standards. I think there's very few things in politics as compelling as when voters worry that they aren't safe in their own homes because of the system around them. Yeah, so this could have serious consequences. Also, I suppose, you know, as you said, Turkey and Syria too have had economic problems recently. How easy will it be for them to rebuild? You know, once the rescue effort is completely over, at what point does reconstruction begin and how long is that likely to take? Turkey is in a particularly vulnerable position right now because Erdogan has consistently refused to raise interest rates and inflation is expected to be 
higher than 80%, which means that people's wages and people's household bills have just been increasingly mismatching. I've spoken to office workers who told me that they've had 100% pay increases, their pay packet has been doubled, and yet they're still poorer off than they were a year or two ago. And as a result, many people just don't have the cash to restart their lives, to rebuild their homes, to replace what they've lost. And then if you look over the border in Syria, where you've had over a decade of conflict, people have very little, and and especially in areas not held by the government. They have very few authority figures that they can trust and that who will work on their side and help them rebuild. So I think what we're seeing now is obviously very much an emergency, but I think the emergency becomes a humanitarian crisis the longer things go on. What do people in Turkey want to happen now? What do they need from the rest of the world? Well, the people who are in the worst affected areas need tents, they need blankets, but they also need people to come and help get them out of the rubble. We need search and rescue teams, basically. Turkey clearly just doesn't have enough people to help with that search and rescue because there are so many affected areas. Everyone just has nothing The extent of the damage and the devastation and the deaths are horrifying. You know Turkey well. How long do you think it'll take to recover? How hard will that be? This is going to take a long, long time. Turkey is currently going through a very bad economical phase. The country doesn't have any money anyway. And now we have thousands upon thousands of people who are homeless and who need help from the state. And I'm not sure how the state can really help with such a huge problem on such a scale as this. I think they've said they're going to give 10,000 lira to each family affected by the earthquake as a starting figure. But obviously, they will need to provide far more help than that. They will need to build housing And that is going to take a long time. I think in the 1999 earthquake, it took five, six, maybe more years for places to be rebuilt for people affected by the earthquake to get housing. And Turkey isn't the best when it comes to organising or getting things done in an organised manner. It's a bit chaotic anyway, but again, because it's on such a big scale, I cannot see how they are going to manage to do this quickly. And apart from the rebuilding and reconstruction, how long do you think it'll take for Turkish society to recover? Possibly even longer. If I think about how I've been affected, I haven't really slept much for the past few days since it happened. Even though I'm safe... And even though I haven't felt any more aftershocks, any type of movement has me alert. So even if it's just someone slightly shifting in their seat and it makes where I'm sitting move, I am suddenly thinking, okay, oh, is there another earthquake? And that's just from feeling this earthquake. The people who have been affected by it, I cannot begin to imagine the trauma they have been through and how long that will take them to get over that. The people who are 
trapped under the rubble, who are being rescued 50 hours after it happened. How long that will take for them to get over it, I don't know. It's also bringing back a lot of memories for people who were in the West in the 1999 earthquake. I have a friend lost a lot of family in that earthquake. She's currently in the UK. She is beside herself with what is going on and is doing all she can to help from the UK. It's going to take a long time for people to get over this. But I have to say, the Turkish people have really come together. So I was at a donation centre today to see what help I could bring. And Mm. just everyone has been donating anything that they can get. So clothes, food, hygiene products things for children, toys. Even little children have been bringing in their own toys to send to children who have been affected by this earthquake. It's something that's nice to see. Despite this tragedy, there are good things that are coming out of it, and that's that the people are really coming together. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, columnist for The Times, Sarah Tor, and journalist, Gabriel Gavin. You can find more coverage of the earthquake at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Sam Chantarasak and Priyanka Deladia. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to help the people affected by the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, you can donate to the Disasters Emergency Committee by logging on to donation.dec.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Have a good weekend. <laughs>